Hey, welcome to the Transform Your Workplace podcast. I'm Brandon Laws, your host. In today's episode, I had a conversation with Joel Peterson. He is the chairman of JetBlue Airways. He's also the author of the book, The 10 Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great. And I'm one of those people that I tend to lead with trust. Even if I don't know you, I think that by leading with trust and being trusting of others, I think it is good overall. And I asked Joel a lot of those questions like, is it risky to do that? Does he do it? And then what levels of trust are there in organizations as well? And how do we continue to build trust with other people? So that way our teams are effective, we can get work done faster, we can you know work together a lot better. So I really love this episode. I hope you agree with me when you listen to the podcast and then also perhaps some of you will go out and get his book. By the way, it's a short read very worth it. You know, by the time you're done with this, I am really curious if you think that, you know, this book is for leaders only, or if you would give a copy or, you know, share this content with everybody in the organization, because I believe, and this is just my opinion, but I believe that this book is meant for everybody. I think the leaders could start by listening to this podcast or reading the book and discussing it. You know, and trust does start in culture begins at the top, but I think it needs to trickle down to all the employees and the employees have to be bought into it. And we talk a lot about that. So curious what you think. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to have Joel Peterson on the podcast. Please go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review if you listen that way. Otherwise, share this on LinkedIn with your friends, your colleagues, and other people you're connected with, Twitter, connect with me on Instagram, any of those places. We're building a great community here and really appreciate the support. Enjoy the episode. Joel, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Nice to be here. You wrote a book, The 10 Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great. In the forward, I love this. So Stephen M. R. Covey, which I read his book years ago, The Speed of Trust, he said in the forward that trust is the number one leadership competency that leaders need today. Why do you think he said that? And do you agree with him? I do agree with him. I think it's the most valuable currency a leader has, particularly if things aren't going really well. There's nothing like trust to allow lenders to keep lending you money, investors to keep putting money with you, suppliers to provide goods, employees to stay with you. You know, they have to trust you to do that. So when times are good, sometimes people are able to manage by power alone, but trust is more reliable over the long run. I think there are a lot of people out there that don't lead with trust. And I think they're skeptical of what intentions are. And maybe they've just been burned in the past. And so that's probably why they don't lead with trust. But you know, after reading Stephen M. R. Covey's book, The Speed of Trust, probably 10 plus years ago for me, and I remember, you know, entering the workforce and reading that and thinking to myself, this is the way to go. I think everything happens faster, business gets done. I think relationships and trust is built better if you lead with it. Am I in the minority by leading with trust? And what do you do? Are you inclined to lead with trust as well, even if people don't give you a reason to initially? I am. That's my natural instinct. You learn over time to be careful with how you grant trust. Trust is earned by delivering on promises. And so you want to give people a chance to earn your trust. I think if you just grant it willy-nilly without people earning it, you can end up getting burned. People who are burned often become wary. I've seen actually the millennial generation and younger, Gen Z, Gen Y, are actually relatively wary 
you know, they've been burned or they've seen people get burned. And so they grant trust a little bit more slowly. When we look at like the workforce from the executives all the way to the lowest level, you know, building a culture of high trust, it probably takes a long time. What is the recipe for a high trust culture? Is it simply just leading with trust? Is it all these interactions going well, people not, you know, betraying the trust? Like in your experience, because you have a great career that you've had, what is the recipe? Well, that's kind of why I wrote this book and factor analyzed it to say, you know, you really have to have these elements, these kind of hygiene elements that allow you to build a high trust culture. And you can be intentional about it, but you lay it down a conversation at a time, an action at a time. It's really, there is no way to just lead with trust. That's kind of taking a leap of faith into the void. And that's not enough. Trust is really derivative of character, competence, and authority or power to deliver. Without all three of those elements, there's no point in trusting. So you have to really understand trust and its dynamics. And then I think there are a set of rules, organizational rules, that if people will follow, they can build a high-trust culture. You talked about the rules and I think even values and morals. So if we talk about betrayal of trust, what is typically that a result of? Are they just simply not a good person? Are they not trustworthy to begin? What is that a result of? Well, there are two kinds of betrayals. One is people just don't deliver on what they said they would do. And that may be because there was an intervening variable. They didn't understand what the expectation was. Any number of things could have happened that caused them to fail to deliver. And that's kind of a breach of trust, but it's not intentional. They didn't go out and decide to mm. you know, cheat you or lie to you or steal money or anything like that. That's a different kind of betrayal. I think the former can be addressed if you address it quickly and you fix the breach by communicating and understanding and getting things fixed. The latter, I think you have to get out of business with somebody. I think there's really very little chance of repairing those kinds of betrayals. In your career, have you experienced both sides where one, you said it can be fixed. So I imagine you just have to have an open dialogue with somebody about fixing whatever they're not delivering on. And then on the other side, you'd said, that you just need to get out of business with them. You've had a long career. Have you experienced both of those? I have experienced the former all the time. And I actually let people down from time to time myself too. And I've just found that the only way to deal with that is with direct and specific feedback so that you stay in constant conversations with people and you don't let any grass grow under you and those. You just make sure that you fix them. And if you fix them right away, that you can actually build trust through the misunderstanding, through working your way through the misunderstanding. So that happens all the time. They say feedback is the breakfast of champions. And so you just get into a feedback culture that allows you to fix these things along the way. The other kind, I've had a couple of instances of those. And the main thing is to overcome the betrayal yourself, you know, because a lot of people live in the past. They just don't ever let go of it. And I think that is toxic. You'd mentioned that you've let people down from time to time. I know I have as well. You know, one of the best concepts from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, was the, the concept of emotional bank accounts. And I think this ties in really nicely where if you betray trust, you're obviously, you know, you're withdrawing out of that emotional bank account and that's not good. And it probably takes a lot to recover. 
if you withdraw from that emotional bank account, you betray trust in some way. What is the way that you've found yourself getting back and earning that trust back? Well, I think the first thing that you have to do is understand it and make sure that you're clear about it. So I think going to the party and saying, I, did this disappoint you or did you have a different expectation? You really have to understand. And I think once you've understood, then I think there's nothing quite like an apology. And a lot of people don't know how to make an effective apology. You can't say, I'm sorry if you thought whatever. That's an accusation, not an apology. Or I'm sorry, but is not really an apology. No. A complete apology is to say, you know, I let you down. I am really sorry about that. And it won't happen again. Or here's what I want to do to fix it. Or, you know, that's a real apology. And so I think that's the only way to really kind of rebuild restore the trust that's been lost in the withdrawal. In the book, you've got this great graphic that shows a low trust culture all the way to a high trust culture and the levels of trust along the way. On the low side, you have force, fear, reward, then duty and love. And I'm really curious why you said duty and love are the ones that are the key components to a high trust organization. So talk about those components and why those are the core pieces. Well, if you think about the motivators in life, you can pretty much cluster any motivator in one of those five things, which are, again, force, fear, reward, duty, or love. So if somebody is forcing you to do something, it can be quite effective to motivate you. If I put a gun to your head, you'll do just about anything I tell you to do uh, until yeah. the gun is no longer at your head. And then you may grab the gun and shoot me. You may run away. But it's not a very powerful motivator unless it is constant. Reward and fear are a little bit that way, you know. So people who operate by power often are able to dispense promotions or bonuses or whatever, and they can get people to do things based on that. They're not that sticky either. People get other opportunities, other things happen, and they're gone. Whereas I think if people are really driven by a sense of duty, they're operating out of meaning. They really find an important meaning in their lives for doing something. So trust levels go up. You see those in the military and in a number of teams. And then love is sort of when you have reciprocal relationships, family relationships or other, where, you know, it's very hard to break the levels of trust in those because it's really a powerful motivator. In that graphic, you actually plotted different types of organizations, which I thought was really interesting. So on the force side, you had prisons, and on the love side, families, as you just mentioned. Businesses are smack dab in the middle on a reward, but I'm curious in, in your experience if you could get businesses and other organizations more on that duty and love side of the spectrum as well. I imagine that's what you had intended is that if all else fails, businesses will likely sit right underneath reward because that's tend to be how they operate. But could you incorporate some duty and love to make sure that it's a high-trust organization? Absolutely. You can build those kinds of organizations. It doesn't have to be only a nonprofit or a church or a school or something like that. But you can actually have business organizations that are driven by a sense of meaning, by a sense of caring for each other, that have a broader notion of mission. They're doing something that people really believe is meaningful and where the relationships are such that people don't want to let each other down. Those are really the kind of the most durable, powerful businesses. You know, most businesses don't last for very long because they're not built that way. But you can build one that is durable. 
You talked about empowerment, and I think it's such a huge component to having a high-trust culture. You shared a, a great story from your childhood days about basically convincing your father to let you back a car out of the driveway before you're even technically of driving age. And it didn't go so well. But what was the outcome of that? You did say that your father empowered you after you'd made a big failure. How so? Yeah, so I basically backed the car up over a curb onto an embankment and hung it up there. And he had to come out and rescue me. (laughs) And it was embarrassing. And I thought, well, this is the end of driving for me. And as he was walking into the house, he turned around and tossed me the keys and said, Mm -hmm. don't forget to put it in drive this time. And I've thought about that for my whole career, when I've worked with people who've let me down, that I'm tossing them the keys and say, don't forget to put it in drive this time. They've learned the lesson, you know, and trusting somebody again when they've made a mistake, once they've realized they've made a mistake, you've helped them fix it. It's a really powerful moment to empower somebody. I love that. If somebody doesn't spend a lot of time in high trust environments where you know there might be a lot of empowerment going on, as we just talked about, what kind of experience do you think they're going to have when they maybe come from a culture of low trust to now an organization where it's high trust? How do you think their reaction is going to be? Are they going to catch on right away? Are they going to be able to integrate really well? Or are they going to be a little shocked? Well, I think people have this wariness gene that has been nurtured. And so I think for a while, they don't quite believe it. It takes some getting used to that you really are empowered. You're given authority. There are measurements. There's feedback. Communications are open. People are transparent. There's a bunch of things that happen in a high-trust organization that don't go on in low-trust organizations. And so it takes a little bit of time for people to absorb all of that and to process the information and to relax a little. I find that most people are really relieved when they get used to it. And they say, oh my gosh, we can be vulnerable. We can admit mistakes. It's okay to be transparent. But that takes some getting used to. Yeah. I read a book a couple of months ago, The Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson. And psychological safety is what they talked about quite a bit. And I just remember, you know, in that book, I think a lot of employees have a fear from their leaders. And I think it's through these interactions, you know, empowering others or just like, if you mess up, knowing that it's safe to either speak up or make mistakes and talk about them. I think that's where we need to get to. But I'm curious to know from your career why that's not really the case, why there's fear and why a lot of leaders tend to lead that way. Well, power and fear and force and reward are really uh, potent ways of getting things done, at least in the short run. And I think a lot of people just find it's so much more efficient in the short Mm -hmm. run. What they don't realize is they are actually making what you called withdrawals, you know, in the long run, and they're lowering the levels of trust, the ambient trust of an organization, which then makes it hard to do everything later on, makes it hard to attract great people, to keep great people, to handle reversals to fix things, to innovate. They don't just make organizations more pleasant. People are happier. You know, human beings are happier in environments of high trust. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of organizations, especially large ones, will tend to hire the splashy CEO names, charismatic, ego-driven, but they may not be the best fit long-term. You stated this in your book, 
Jim Collins stated this in Good to Great as well. In their lacking sense of humility, why did you state that humility is really important for a CEO, especially in building a high trust environment? Because human beings, all of us make mistakes and we all have doubts. And if we are around a CEO who never makes a mistake, who never has any doubts, we don't fully trust. We don't really believe totally. And I think there's nothing more endearing than somebody who at the top of an organization says, I made a mistake. We're going to change this. Here's what I'm going to work on. Thank you for the feedback. I'm going to get better at this. You know, it's really, you trust people like that. You just don't trust people who never make a mistake. It's true. You know, a lot of organizations, and I think a lot of people, especially in my industry, the HR space, are really talking about mission, vision, values, and the importance of them. And in being able to connect people to the good that they're doing in the community or for their clients, I think as organizations evolve and grow, and you stated this in your book, that vision statements need to iterate as the company evolves. How does that all play a role in trust and building a high trust organization? Well, one of the things I point out is that when you have these mission statements that are framed and on the wall, you've basically <laughs> guaranteed cynicism <laughs> because, yeah. you know, nobody lives up to them. They feel like they're canned. They feel like they're top down. The only mission statements that really work are the ones that people really own, where it truly is the mission and people bought into it. I find that if people help create those, they talk about them. And if they're living documents, if they're evolving, then people can own them and people can get meaning out of them and trust levels go up. Going back to humility, you shared some ways that leaders might consider installing humility as a foundational element of trust throughout the organization. What are some of your favorite ways? You had a nice list in your book, and I'm just curious, what are some of your favorites? Well, to me, one of the ones is to ensure culture of feedback. And I always have a rule that if people give me feedback, I then give it back to them in a way that says, okay, this is what I've heard. This is what I'm going to be working on. And I think it just really motivates people. If everybody feels like we're working on things to get better, then we're learning. This idea of developing a learning organization. Yes, I love that. It's a really important yeah, idea to develop. You said that showing respect isn't the same as being nice. What did you mean by that? You care about what's best for another person. You listen to them. Being nice, it's easy to sort of be superficially nice to somebody without really listening. You know, you've had people, I'm sure, who've been superficially nice to you, but you haven't felt like they really care about you or they're really listening to anything you have to say. They're waiting for you to stop talking so they can start talking. And I just find that showing respect all the way up and down an organization, which means listening, people caring about them, being a fiduciary for another person, which just means that you put their interests on a par with your own. That's a powerful thing. And does that also mean like providing feedback for them in the moment? Is that respectful? I think it's very respectful. I mean, to me, that's the most powerful feedback. I'm not a really big believer. You mentioned that you're involved in HR, so you know that these year-end performance reviews are kind of de rigueur in companies. I think you have to have them for various reasons, but I think if that's the limit to the feedback you give people, it's almost offensive. The best feedback is after a meeting or after a presentation or something, you pull somebody aside. You tell them what went well, what didn't go well. You just let them hear what's on your mind and then you receive feedback yourself. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'm of the school of thought, like, yeah, you need the annual reviews probably for metric driven stuff. And also just to reflect on the previous year. But to your point, like having those moments right after a meeting or one-on-one meetings to be able to provide feedback in the moment versus imagine, you know, you're sitting down with a manager once a year and they're going to dump all this feedback on you. Like to me, that would be a trust killer. It is a trust killer. I mean, one of the things I do after board meetings is I sit down with the CEO after every board meeting and have a little feedback session. A lot of times people think feedback is telling people what didn't go right. And I think it's really powerful to let people know with specificity, here's what I thought this was really effective, or this really went well, or I was surprised at how much this worked, or whatever, so that that feedback comes across too. But it has to be pretty regular. As humans, we're not perfect. And there's going to become a time where somebody, whether it's me, whether it's you, we're going to need to restore trust in some way. You know, what are some ways, whether it's an incident or just things that you've done over time, what's the best way to earn trust back or restore it? Again, it's back to what we talked about before in that you listen and you understand exactly how did it get strained. You know, I think unless you understand what the strain was, it's hard to fix it. So I think it could be that, you know, something was late or it wasn't done well or you said some harsh words. But you have to understand the source. And then I think it is giving an honest apology that's complete and specific. And then it's not doing it again. It's making a commitment. Say, you know, I'm sorry that I blew up in that instance. That was inappropriate. I'm sorry. It won't happen again. Let's move forward. And I think people will generally allow you to move forward. Joel, what's your favorite law from this book? Because there's 10. They're simple to understand. It's a short book that I think leaders need to have on their desk. I think this is a great reference book as well. What's one of the most foundational laws from your perspective? It's kind of like when somebody says, is air more important or (laughs) is food more important? They all kind of go together. I mean, it's pretty hard to have trust without sort of honoring all of these fundamental underlying principles that take you to bedrock. That said, to me, Trust starts at the top of an organization and starts with the integrity of the leader. That means the leader basically has to do what he or she says they'll do. They have to, you know, make promises and keep promises. And all trust starts there. But then if you don't communicate effectively, if you're not transparent, if you don't let people know bad news as well as good news and communicate before, during, and after events, you can actually drain the trust from an organization. So I think you have to be thoughtful about all of these bedrock principles. Joel Peterson, you're the author of The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great. You're also the chairman of JetBlue Airways. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people learn more about you, your work, the book, anything that you want to point people to? That'd be fantastic. I think there's a website called the thetenlawsoftrust.com. And I think I'm at joelcpeterson.com or on a tweet thing or something like that. I'm not sure. (laughs) We'll make sure to put links up to all that. I'm 72 years old, so social media and I are not best friends. (laughs) Well, at least you can admit that. That's good stuff. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Joel. It was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Good to talk. 